Oh, Father, we praise you for this venue. It is April the 10th, 2022, and it's no accident that we're here. All glory be to Christ. And we do pray for our upcoming members meeting. Lord, bless our conversations beforehand, and for the meeting itself, would it be a sweet time in the life of our church? And Father, for the preached word today, give me strength. I feel weak. I feel tired. I feel inadequate for the task. I feel insufficient. And yet at the same time, I'm reminded of, of the sufficiency of the scriptures. Transform my own heart as I preach, first to myself. And would you bless our congregation through the power of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I must con confess something before we start. I told you, I think it was last week or the week before, maybe last week, that I don't like to be late. I think I mentioned that last week, and we see divine delays in the scriptures. Well, I don't like to be late, and so I told you that I always set two alarms just so that I'm not late. Well, this morning, one alarm I just forgot to set, and the other alarm went off on silent mode. And so I was in frantic late mode today. So I just wanted to confess that to you. I told you I'm never late today. I accomplished almost nothing that I wanted to accomplish in the early morning. And so that's the truth. And maybe one of the reasons I feel especially weak today, but the Bible is not weak, is it? The Bible is sufficient. So as long as we open those scriptures and preach it faithfully, the Lord will do a work in our hearts. And so you'll find the entire text in the bulletin. It won't be on the screens today, but it is in your bulletin. Or again, if you have a Bible or another way of reading the Bible, we'll be looking at John chapter 12. So we're going to keep making our way through this gospel, verses 12 through 36. Two weeks ago, we looked at the six surprises and the seventh sign. Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Last week, we looked at Mary's extravagant devotion, Judas's deceptive greed, and a futile plan to stop Jesus. Christ's fame is growing, and the religious leaders are getting angrier and angrier, more impatient by the day. Well, in our passage today, we're entering in what will become Christ's last week on earth. These verses are often celebrated in Christian tradition as Palm Sunday, a week before Resurrection Sunday, which is amazing because what is next Sunday? Well, it's Easter or Resurrection Sunday. So we're studying Palm Sunday, this text from Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday, which is wonderful. We'll see four paradoxes in our verses today. A paradox is a, a noun or a phrase that can mean a statement that is self-contradictory. It's something that seems like a contradiction or is just plainly absurd, but in reality expresses a truth. So we're going to see four paradoxes, things that make no earthly sense, but represent the truth. We'll take them one at a time. So paradox number one, a peaceful Savior. A peaceful Savior in verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. 
So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Well, friends, the Passover had just taken place. And now in verse 12, here we have the next day, the crowd visiting for the Passover feast heard that Jesus was heading to Jerusalem. Historian Josephus describes one feast that had almost three million people. So even if that was exaggerated just a bit, you can assume a million, maybe even two million pilgrims there in Jerusalem for this feast. We're talking about an enormous crowd. Verse 13, so they, the crowd, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I wanted to read that again just there, even the king of Israel. Well, after an earlier military victory, the palm branches became a Jewish national symbol, later even appearing on coins. The act of waving a branch was a symbol of victory. It was symbolic of a, of a champion. Now Jesus comes, they're waving the branches. And notice the language here of Psalm 118. There is no doubt at this point that people were hoping that Jesus was their Messiah. But what kind of Messiah were they hoping for? Well, they were hoping for a military Messiah, a political Messiah, one that would free them from the grips of Rome. One that would be their champion on earth. And here's the paradox. Jesus had risen Lazarus from the dead. Excitement was in the air. Here was the man. Here was the Savior. Here was the Messiah that we had been waiting for. The crowd was even proclaiming, Hosanna! That's a word originally transliterated from the Hebrew word, give salvation now. So they were yelling out as this Jesus was coming in, give salvation now. It's time. This is the time. Blessed is he, even the king. But notice like Caiaphas, the chief priest who proclaimed in these weeks previous, better that we kill Jesus, better that we kill one man than we lose the whole nation. Better we take out one man, then we lose our power and authority. Well, the people had no idea here what they were saying, did they? Well, they were actually right. He was the deliverer. He was the king. But not the kind they thought. And these same, same people cheering for Jesus and waving the palm branches on Palm Sunday would shout for his crucifixion just a few days later. A peaceful Savior was absurd to the people, a paradox. Well, we see a second paradox. If there was some doubt already, Jesus began to crush their zeal without even saying a word, but by doing something. He was the king overall, but he lived. Paradox number two, as a humble savior. He was a peaceful savior. He was also number two, a humble savior. Look at verses 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus 
rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Just think about that for a moment. Is this picture familiar to you? Well, it was prophesied in the book of Zechariah. Pastor Morg spent seven weeks leading us into a study of the day of small things, but there was also a day of big things prophesied in that book. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the full of a donkey. This was a prophecy proclaimed hundreds of years before the Gospel of John took place, before Jesus came to earth, before Jesus rode on a donkey. Hundreds of years in the past. And the Bible is full of these, full of these messianic prophecies. A donkey, you can't get much more specific than that. Now, texts like these build our faith in the veracity and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. These aren't man's words. The Bible is the very words of God. Words we should treasure, words we should know, words we should meditate on and memorize and spend time in and teach others. Zechariah prophesies a donkey. And Jesus self-identifies as the fulfillment of that prophecy. You could go back even further than Zechariah all the way to Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 and 11. There's a prophecy of a ruler of Judah, of the line of Judah, riding on a donkey, commanding the obedience of all. Now this is him. This is him. He's a humble Savior. This whole scene is a paradox. Jesus, the most powerful, fully God and Fully man comes riding on a donkey, and not just a donkey, a donkey's colt. This is a baby donkey, a young donkey, a, a child donkey, a youthful donkey. And in order for a grown man to ride a young donkey like this, he would have to bend his knees up as to not have his feet hit the ground. This would have looked ridiculous. Wait a minute. Is, is this the Messiah? Is this the one to, to, to defeat Rome? Is this the one to liberate us from oppression? Well, they must have been scratching their heads at this point. Well, Jesus was being crystal clear. No, I am. I am the king of Israel and the king over all. But not like the earthly kings who fight to the death with swords and with spears, but another kind of king, a humble king. A humble Savior, the kind who just in a few days would die for his people. It was a paradox of power. Instead of riding in on a shiny stallion, this humble Savior rode in weakness. And this was at his height of popularity. Lazarus has been raised, the Passover was at hand. Thousands, if if not even millions gathered together, all ready for war, ready for insurrection. And Jesus comes not as a Zeus, not as a Superman savior, but as a humble shepherd king on a baby donkey. 
This had to be confusing. And it was. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. No one gets it. We see this throughout the Gospel of John, that misunderstanding is one of the themes. You've heard the saying, hindsight is 20-20. Well, if not even the disciples understood what was going on, certain, certainly the crowds didn't get it. The religious leaders didn't get it. Only after the cross and resurrection, only after the glorification, did this become clear, even to his closest followers. Or verses 17 and 18, the crowd still bearing witness. It might have been a donkey, but for the time being, isn't this still the same man who rose a deader than dead man from the grave? Hope wasn't all lost. It was, it was fading. It, they were questioning it. They didn't understand what was happening, but still some glimmers of hope here. Verse 19 makes me grin. Here's what the Pharisees were saying. And the Pharisees said to one another, You see? You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after Jesus. Now, this is funny. The, the Pharisees here, they're freaking out. They were talking to one another, saying to one another, look at what's happening. We're gaining nothing. We're gaining nothing. And then listen to the drama in their words. Look, look. The world is going after him. A bit of a, an overstatement, right? Clearly, this is now a code red situation for the Pharisees. The crowds from all around the world are still following him after Lazarus is raising. The religious leaders are getting more hostile, which leads us to a third paradox. A dying Savior. A dying Savior. In verse 20, among those who went up for worship were some Greeks. That's here, another word for Gentiles, evidently God-fearers, non-Jews who believed in God because they had come to the Passover feast. They had come for Passover. There's still a buzz around Jesus, and they ask him a question. What their question is, we don't exactly know. And why do they ask Philip to see Jesus? Maybe because he's from Galilee, he speaks their language, maybe Greek. Why does he go to Andrew? We don't know. Either way, it's the two of them that pair up together to bring the crowd's request to Jesus. Question's not recorded, but Jesus gives us an interesting answer. He seems to speak to the situation at hand instead. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Well, remember, the Son of Man refers to the Messiah, to the God-man, to Jesus. It's from the, the book of Daniel. We see in chapter 7 and in other places. Jesus loves using this title for himself. It's his self-identification as the God who became flesh. He uses it around 80 times. And it meant that he was the one who would have all dominion and all power and all glory. And that all nations and all languages and all peoples would come worship him. That he was the Messiah of the everlasting kingdom. And the hour had come for the king to be glorified. Up until this very moment, the hour had always been in the future. The hour is not yet. The hour is not here. The hour has not yet come. We see that throughout the Gospel of John over and over again. But all of a sudden, in these verses, right now, the hour has arrived. It's here, not a literal hour, not 60 minutes, but a time that it would inaugurate a new age, the hour of his death. Another paradox, not only was he not a Superman savior, he was a dying savior. That's paradox number three here. Glory would come not in fighting Rome, but in giving up his very life. He was a savior who dies. Now to be glorified means to be honored. The hour in total was his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. That hour had arrived. The hour of his glorification. Jesus was now at death's doorstep. The goal of his very birth. The goal of why he came to earth. The goal of what we celebrated in this room on Christmas Eve was that he was born to die. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We get an illustration here. Jesus is explaining what's happening. Here his death is shown as a grain of wheat sown in the ground. It dies. But then it brings forth a rich harvest. Like a seed whose death produces life, Jesus' death would bring life to the world. And then we see a challenging statement in verse 25. John is saying something incredible here in including this. Yes, Jesus brings life by his death, but now something so radical is being said that we need to pause and we as a church need to think about this. There's a parallel with Jesus for our own lives in the seed illustration. Not in the exact same way, but here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus dies, we live. But for us to truly live, we must also die. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Talk about a countercultural statement. 
Jesus' hour had come, but to truly love our own lives, we must be willing to face an hour of our own. Now, does this mean we can't love life? Does this mean we shouldn't take care of ourselves? Does this mean we shouldn't enjoy God's gracious provision? Of course not. Of course not. We are to thank God for everything. We should be thankful for God's provision. We should praise God for every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. We praise God and we live in a life of thanksgiving. But Jesus is speaking in bold and absolute words here to make a point. Scholar Andreas Kostenberger says, To love his life means he delights in his life in this world more than in God. And hates his life in the world, here means by contrast, he thinks so little of his life and so much of God that he is willing to sacrifice it all for God. That's what we saw in the extravagant devotion of Mary. She was willing to to give it all. This is what we see in the heroes of the faith, many of which have given up their lives for the sake of the gospel. Jesus dies so we would live, but we must be willing to die to this life and so only then find life in Christ. Author Tim Keller shares a story of a young man on a river rafting trip. Now, I've only been whitewater rafting once in my life. It was on our honeymoon before I was disabled, and at times I felt like We were holding on for dear life. There were some harrowing moments on that river. Well, in this particular story, this man is all alone. At least we had a group on our raft, but this man was all by himself rafting down a river, and he sees a dam coming up, and he thought he could navigate the dam on his own, but instead he flipped over. The raft capsized, and he flipped into the water And he began to try to swim. But here was the problem. The backwash at the base of the dam created a a whirlpool. And that whirlpool was, was pulling him in. And what did he do? He tried to swim downstream. He tried to swim in the opposite direction. But it was like swimming in a or on a treadmill. He couldn't get anywhere. But he kept swimming and kept swimming and kept swimming The water was deathly cold. He had friends on the shore, but they were helpless to do anything for him. And so he fought to stay alive, never stopping, never stopping. He could never break free. And eventually he went down under the water, dying of hypothermia. Well, do you know what happened in the moment after he died and stopped trying to save his life? Well, the moment he died and stopped trying to swim against the current, his body was sucked down into the base of the dam by the whirlpool, and within five seconds, he popped up 10 meters downstream, freed from the current where he could have easily swam to shore. The current that he thought would drown him would have actually saved him. Well, the point is that by trying to save himself, he lost his life. The solution to his problem was counterintuitive. The apparent death, giving up control, was actually the way of salvation. He just had to let go. 
And Jesus says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now here's what it means to follow me. You have to hate your life. That's what Jesus is saying. You have to hate your life. You have to lose your life. You have to give up your life. You have to stop trying to save your own life. You have to give it up and give it all to him. You have to lose your life to discover it. You have to follow Jesus. We have to be willing to follow Christ and be willing to go after him, to go where he went, to go giving up everything to him. And it's in that we find honor from the Father. The paradox is that our Savior died. In the real world, superheroes don't die. They live, they save, they overcome obstacles. They're superheroes. But it's not only a paradox, but a surprise and a gospel full of surprises. In order to follow Christ, you and I must also die. Now, what does that look like for you? What does that look like for you and me, even this week, this month, for the rest of our lives? Is it having those hard conversations you've been avoiding? Is it reconciling with a family member? Is it repenting of sexual sin? Asking someone for forgiveness? Admitting deceit? Is it being honest about your finances? Changing your ethics in the workplace? Not doing it just like the world does it? A willingness to do a job that's maybe beneath your skill level for the sake of Christ? Is it sharing the gospel with someone? Is it standing up for Christ in a hostile culture? Is it sharing Jesus with someone even if your life is at stake? Is it moving to a new place for the sake of ministry? Is it taking time to spiritually shepherd your children at home in Bible study? Is it reaching out for friendship with someone you've not wanted to? Is it financial freedom by giving your money away? Is it repenting of bitterness that you've held on towards someone? Is it changing your lifestyle and living below your means to help others? Is it bringing someone into your home who needs a place to stay? What does it look like for you, Christian, to die? What does it look like to throw away, to cast out your idols, to hate your life in a God-honoring way? To die at a fundamental level means to let go. It means to let go of your rights. It means to let go of your preferences. It means to let go of even your dreams if that's what God is calling you to. Now, I have no idea what God is calling you to do. I have no idea what Jesus has for you. But here's what I know. Three things. Number one, it will be hard. Number one, it will be challenging. Death, death is never easy. Death is never easy. Following Jesus and dying to yourself will be challenging. Faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to follow Christ here in John chapter 12 will not be easy. Number two, it will mean trusting him. 
I don't mean trusting, entrusting your life into him. It means to, to give away something. I don't know what it is. Time, talent, treasure. It's a willingness to give up your glory. It's a willingness to give up your pride. It's a willingness to be humble, to be open, to be transparent, to admit sin, to admit guilt. This is hard. But we have to trust Jesus. And yes, it'll be hard. And yes, you'll have to trust Jesus. But here's the third thing. And this third thing is an assurance to us. Number three, God will be with you. If you die to yourself and follow Christ, he'll be with us. Do you see that in verse 26? He'll be with you in your dying. He'll be with you in your dying. When you follow Jesus, you're not like that man all alone in the raft. There will be challenges. There will be tragedies. There will be difficulty. But our God will never leave us nor forsake us. He will always be with us. But like the swimmer in that whirlpool, oh friend, I must ask you today, are you fighting for your life when you need to let go? If that's you, die to yourself. Live for God. Look to Him. And Christians, Redeemer Church, ask yourself this. What does it look like for me to hate my life in order to save my life? Maybe today, if you head over to the Festival City Food Court, maybe you can ask yourselves this question or at least begin to think about it and process it with others. Let me say it again. What does it look like for me? I want us to ask ourselves, what does it look like for me to hate my life in order to save my life? What does it mean to just let go? Well, church, let's put Jesus above all else. Well, a fourth and final paradox, a humiliated Savior. Saw a dying Savior. Now we see a humiliated Savior. Verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus, the Savior, is unsettled with what's happening. Jesus didn't go to the cross without any emotion. He is fully God, and He is fully man. He even prays, Father, save me from this hour. Jesus is in agony. reminds us of the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't it? Where drops of blood fell from his face during prayer. But what are his very next words here? But Father, it's this death. It's for this hour that I've come. I left heaven. I was born on earth in order to die. So yes, this is horrific. And not just physical death. This was the most agonizing death. He faced betrayal, mockery, beatings, and a slow, grueling, embarrassing, and most horrific of human deaths. A humiliating death. It's that death on the cross, which was his very mission for saving his people. Jesus was our substitute. We should have died for our sins, but instead he died for all his people's sins. 
We should have faced the full wrath of God, but instead Christ drank every last drop of the cup of wrath that we deserve. He took our guilt. He took our sin. He took our shame. All of it. The paradox is that a humiliating death is what leads to everlasting life. Now Jesus here is being real. I can't bear the thought, Father. I can't bear the thought of going to this death. I can't bear the thought of this hour. But. But this is why I came. This is why you sent me. And so verse 28, Jesus continues a prayer. Father, glorify your name. A four-word prayer. One commentator says there is no greater prayer than this. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' whole life was oriented around making much of the Father. So Redeemer Church, April 10th, 2022, this is our prayer. This is our greatest prayer. Oh, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name through this church. Glorify your name through our lives. Glorify your name here in this hotel. Glorify your name in Dubai and Sharjah and Ajman. Glorify your name in and through us. Through trials and through triumphs, glorify your name. Oh, Redeemer Church, this is our prayer. This is what I've been praying last night and in my short morning today. Father, glorify your name. This was especially my prayer yesterday. I prayed earlier for my weakness. I feel weak. I still feel weak, helpless even. Resonating with the Apostle Paul when he said, I am the chief sinner. I resonate with that, even repenting of sin as I prep this sermon. I may be the senior pastor, but I also feel like the chief sinner. And in a sense, Paul says, we all are. Every one of us is a chief sinner in need of grace. And so, Father, glorify your name among us. Forgive us for not praying as we should. But, Father, forgive us for not always honoring you with our lips. But, Father, forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive me for, at times, leading poorly. Father, forgive us for not praying like Christ does here. Father, glorify your name. Whatever the cost, whatever the calling, whatever we may lose, Father, glorify your name. Oh, Father, with the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. Oh, Redeemer Church, when we face trials, where can we go? When we've sinned, where can we go? Well, we can go to Him. We can go to our Father in prayer and in confession of sins, and we can say, Father, glorify Your name. This is the great prayer. Oh, Father, redeem the most challenging situations. Oh, Father, make beauty from ashes. Jesus is facing this horrific death, and what does He pray? Father, you get the glory. 
And do you see what happens next? God the Father answers. Now, I've never heard an audible word from God, and I'm not saying it never happens, but God's normal way of speaking to us is through his word. And yet, all too often we're looking for, for signs, we're waiting for an impression or a voice, and it usually doesn't come, and it doesn't come because we leave our Bibles up on the shelf and we fail to look at the words he's already said to us, words that he's already spoken to us, words that he is still speaking to us from. But here, well, it happens, a voice from heaven, the Father to the Son, these beautiful words, I have glorified it, Jesus, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. There are only three times during Jesus' ministry when a heavenly voice shares his identity. Do you know what the other two are? A little Bible trivia for you this morning. It's baptism and his transfiguration. The Father, who's been glorifying his name through 33 years of Jesus' life and ministry on earth, will continue the work. The hour has come, yes. But not only will he not stop glorifying, the climactic act is here. The crowd is lost, verse 29. This whole time they think of weather systems in the area. They hear thunder. Some think it's an angel. Both are wrong. Verse 30, Jesus answers, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. It's a bit of an odd statement. How is this the case? How was that voice, that thundering for the benefit of others? Well, probably at least two reasons. One, remember, hindsight is twenty-twenty. The leaders, the crowds, the disciples, they didn't understand what was going on. But later, later after his death and resurrection, they can look back at a time like this and receive great comfort. And two, D.A. Carson writes that even though there wasn't a knowledge of what was going on, the very fact that there was a noise or a voice from heaven should have alerted those who had any spiritual sensitivity that what was happening was a really, really big deal. Well, now Jesus is going to give a little commentary on what's going on. His death accomplishes several things. Verse 31, his death will pass judgment on the world. Carson adds, now on the one hand, judgment is reserved for the end of the age. But in John's gospel, it shows us that Judgment also, in a sense, begins with the coming of Christ, climaxing in this hour. End of verse 31. The ruler of the world, Satan. Oh, friends, at the cross, he'll be cast out and defeated. This hour includes the crushing defeat of the evil one. End of verse 34. How can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? That's a question from the crowd. Who is he anyway? Well, it may appear that they're actually thinking that Jesus is in some way predicting his death, but how could this be? They thought their Messiah would live forever, that their Messiah was eternal. Now, again, I think I mentioned that the Son of Man is used 80 times, only once by the people on their own. Even here, they're responding to something Jesus said. They may have not known what that name means, but we do. We do. Jesus is referring to himself back in the book of Daniel, a title attributed to, to his godhood. 
And what we have here is what's called a double entendre. It's a big word. If you almost failed literature class like me, then I need to give you a bit of a refresher. A double entendre is a figure of speech that is intentionally devised to have a double meaning. One that's normally more obvious and another far more subtle. Scholar G.K. Beale says here we have a classic double entendre. The phrase lifted up has two meanings. It's pointing to both the lifting up of Jesus on the cross, but also to his resurrection and ascension. He's lifted up three times in two different ways. First, physically, and then in glory. Amazing. And did you notice who Jesus is doing this for? Look back at verse 32. He says, when I'm lifted up, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Again, in the context of the Greeks or the Gentiles and the Jews, what he's talking about here is people from all nations, all tribes and tongues and languages. He comes from for all kinds of people. There is no nationality and no person who can't be drawn to Christ. Oh, fellow Christian, Jesus was lifted up for you. He was lifted up on the cross and he was lifted to glory. And friend, if you don't yet follow Christ, you need to know that this gift of salvation is available to you even today. Christ was lifted up. You can turn to him. Regardless of your past sin, regardless of your ethnic background, regardless of what you did this last week, Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus as your sacrifice. Oh, friends, do you see this paradox? This paradox is that somehow there was a humiliating death which brought about the greatest glory of God and saved his people. Well, after the crowd asks Jesus, how can the Son of Man be lifted up in verse 34? Jesus doesn't really answer them, does he? Or at least not directly. Look at verses 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now we know what the people didn't know, that of course Jesus would rise from the dead and live forever. But Jesus is referring to his death here. The fact that the light will be with the people only a little while longer means the cross is coming. The cross is coming. Friday is coming. And he pleads with people to believe in the light, to do it now. He's urging them, do it now while I'm with you, while you see me, while you hear me proclaim that I'm the Messiah, while you see me raise Lazarus from the dead, while you heard me preach the words of truth. Believe, believe in the light. Do it before the darkness overtakes you. Jesus says, believe, believe, believe. Walk with me, walk with me. And then the passage just all of a sudden ends with Jesus hiding. But this was no game of hide and seek. It marked God's judgment was coming and Jesus had completed the revealing of himself to Israel. And just like that, the public ministry of Christ comes to an end. Retirement isn't quite the word I'm looking for here, but you get the point. His three years of preaching, teaching, praying, 
doing miracle after miracle, sign after sign. His personal witnessing had come to an end. The march to the cross is on the way. And the crowds have a choice. To walk in darkness or to walk in the light. To walk according to the, to the ways of the world or to follow Christ. And friends, it's the same question that we're left with today. Which way will you choose? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for showing us the beauty of Christ in this text. Oh, Father, would we as a church lose our lives to save it? Not holding to earthly treasures, but pursuing heavenly ones. Oh, Father, convict us of sin. Convict us of selfishness. Convict us of our failures. Father, would indeed the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. And Father, may the greatest prayer we have today is, Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name as we sing. Glorify your name as we have fellowship at the food court. Glorify your name in our homes and in our flats. Father, glorify your name at work tomorrow. Father, glorify your name at school tomorrow. Father, glorify your name in every minute and through every hour of our lives. Let that be the prayer of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.